welcome to the Navacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And today we are talking about the second episode of House of the Dragon, The Rogue Prince, Season 1, Episode 2 of House of the Dragon, that came out yesterday as we're recording this. We're going to be recording episodes on House of the Dragon every week that are going to be coming out on the Tuesday mornings after each episode for patrons and for everyone else as well. And so, uh, Manu, I want to start off with one question before we dig into this episode. Did you like it more or less than episode one? Oof. Um, I would say not as much, but I don't think that's anything as a failing of this show. I think that's very common to the television structure where you kind of want to open with a bang. And I think the tourney scene, the death of uh, Emma, um, and then the ending with the prophecy are all kind of like big picture or like kind of big spectacle things. And this episode kind of really kind of zoomed in a little bit on the statecraft and the palace intrigue. And everything was really kind of focused on this question of Viserys' next marriage. So, you know, the scope of the first one was just really huge. And I think it was just kind of a thrill to be back. So you're never really going to get that high again. But I don't think there's anything necessarily at fault with this episode. But I just think that first episode was such a high. And this episode carried that legacy on just fine. Just... um it just wasn't as broad, I would say. And broad, I mean, in a good way. Just it wasn't that big spectacle of a premiere that the, you know, Heirs of the Dragon was. Yeah, I agree. You, you make a great point that this is, it's more kind of intimate by design. And it kind of has to be to pivot to what's coming next. And I, th- I thought the pacing was maybe a little off in that there were just a lot of hushed dialogue scenes right in a row up front. And the, the big kind of selling point action beat of this one was on Dragonstone, maybe... Maybe I would have pushed that earlier up in the episode, but I don't, there was no scene in the episode I didn't like or didn't think worked on its own terms. So even if I don't, it wasn't as as quite as a punch as the first one, it was still a really good episode. Yeah, there were some things I structurally admired about this episode. Um, The fact that they kind of held back on Damon. I'm not sure if that was to the episode's advantage or not, but the fact that he was kind of talked about for almost the first half of the episode before appearing. Um, And then the fact that almost all of it was organized around the question of Viserys' next marriage. So there was a lot of like cohesion between the scenes. And you can see the logical flow between scenes from like Alicent and Viserys to Alicent and Rhaenyra and then Viserys and Rhaenyra. Um, It just felt like the thesis or the premise of this episode was, you know, pretty much there. You could see it. It all revolved around a singular question. So it was just probably easier to follow maybe than the first episode. But um, yeah, it just... That's where it excelled at, but I don't think it felt very by the book or very like perfunctory at certain points where it's just like we need to get some points across, whether it's dialogues, relationships, dynamics. But right now they're still kind of communicating a lot of information at us. Um, And I think that's also where some of the episode doesn't feel as great as the first one. So I guess it makes sense to start with the start of the episode, which is the opening credits title sequence. And they hit us with some brand new music, right? Right? (sighs) <sighs> look, look, I, I love the Game of Thrones theme. It's a perfect piece of music. It's always, you know, it's welcomed us into a new episode every week. That was part of the ritual of it when Thrones was on. It was a, a snug, warm blanket to start things off. Uh, when I was just kind of warming up last night to, to watch this episode of House of the Dragon right before it, it came online, I was re-watching Two Swords, the premiere of season four of Game of Thrones, the one with that great silent opening of, of Tywin melting down ice and burning the wolf skin right after the Red Wedding. And the Reigns of Castamere is playing and cutting from that right into the theme. Like that's just, it's one of the most satisfying moments of the show. And really both pieces of music together make that happen. But just straight up reusing it for House of the Dragon, just copy and pasting it over. Yeah, I I think that was a bad decision. It It comes off to me like a lack of confidence, like this can't stand on its own. And I've seen people comparing it to reusing the Star Wars theme. And I think the difference there is that, you know, that's only in the the movies and the main line of movies, the numbered movies. And those, when they came out, came out every two to three years. This is something we're watching every week. And I'm, I worry it's going to grow stale. Yeah, I, I agree across the board. Like, I get it. You know, the Thrones theme is iconic, but I think just on some very basic level, I wanted something new. If for nothing else, just for a change of pace or just to hear Ram- Ramin Jawadi just provide us with another great piece of music. Um, 
whether it's going to work or not, we shall see. But I think one thing we're starting to see really early in the series is that they're not running away from the throne show. You know, some said with uh, George's increased involvement or the fact that season eight was not received well critically, that they might try to distance themselves from Game of Thrones um, or at least the end of it. But it seems like they're pretty much, you know, rolling with it as an important thing. Um, the thing that I maybe worry about, and this isn't a big worry, is that are they going to do this with all these spinoff shows? Because you can kind of make it work with this, but when you get to like Nymeria or the Corliss spinoff or even the Jon Snow series, I don't feel like this Game of Thrones theme would be accurate because at least it's still the Game of Thrones in House of Dragon. Like they're still the High Lords playing their games and trying to sit on that chair. But, you know, something like Nymeria's Travels or Jon Snow or Corliss, um, they wouldn't. You know, that's not what their story is about, presumably. So I don't know what the point would be to have this theme repeated here, if not repeating it elsewhere. Um, so it just kind of, it's very interesting to me. I can't say I love the decision, but it's also something that if the show is good enough, it's not something I'll think about much longer than another episode or two, I'm sure. No, of course. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, great point about the later shows. Like, you're, they're just kicking the can down the road, and now it's kind of more awkward if the next one doesn't, because it's mm -hmm. like you've had two with that theme. So yeah, I wish that one... Yeah, I wish... And also, yeah, I would have loved to hear something distinct, even if it wasn't as memorable or iconic as the Thrones theme. Like, just something atmospheric or creepy. I would have I would have loved to hear it. That said, though, I, I love the opening credit scene visually. Tracking through Viserys' big old Lego set of Valyria, following the blood as it spreads. And that, you know, that just, that stands in for so much. It's, it's the doom of Valyria, which Viserys talks about in this episode. Of course, it's the bloody mess of the Dance of the Dragons. But it's also just blood as in the family line of House Targaryen, linked to their words, fire and blood. It, it feels like like Alicent, you know, she's digging into her fingers. It feels like she she dug so hard that all her blood is just coming out. And it, it's, it suits the kind of the tone of the show so far that you have war brewing just under the surface. All this blood, it's it's ready to break free. And as a horror fan, I just I just loved the imagery of this. It reminded me of the, the elevator scene in The Shining when the doors open up and the wave of blood comes out. Just cover everything in blood and I'm a happy man. Yeah, um, I think it was really great. I think it's a really smart way and it's a great way to kind of communicate some of the relationships that exist in the Targaryen dynasty. Um, and it's something you can see that will likely grow because I know uh, Corliss, uh, I can't remember their screen name on Twitter, but did a really great thread about how this like starts with Aegon the Conqueror and works its way down the bloodlines of Targaryens to the current people. And we know that a lot of these characters are going to go on and have progeny of their own. So we'll see them probably added to uh, the opening credits at some point, uh, maybe as early as next episode. And then, you know, I'm not someone who likes to make predictions of sort, uh, but I can see them adding fire eventually to this opening credits, like perhaps later seasons, you know, like fire and blood literally bring those uh, that title to life. But also as House Targaryen burns down, as you know, the Dance of the Dragons parallels the Doom of Valyria in terms of just kind of the tar the dragon lords, you know, kind of bringing it upon themselves. So um, there's a lot of room to play with. But I think even just what we got in the first place is pretty, pretty, pretty great. And I'm very excited to see what comes from it. Uh, one visual that kind of was arresting to me was that when the blood flow got to essentially what was the Jaharis and Alisane portion of the family tree, um, the screen rotated and the bloodline sprouted upwards and out in many directions, which speaks to their many children and grandchildren. But given the color uh, like palette of this opening, it was just like white or gray with like red blood splashed on it. So it reminded me of werewoods for a little bit. Um, I can't say that means anything specifically, but it just such stark imagery, well, literally stark imagery, I guess, um, that it kind of stuck out. And obviously, Jaehaerys and Alysanne probably interacted with the North more so than any of the Targaryen kings from at this point in the history of Westeros. It's the Song of Ice and Fire, after all, as Viserys was so kind to remind us. And one of the, the things I think that's interesting in the imagery that crops up consistently in A Song of Ice and Fire are the moments when the ice and fire symbols kind of blur into each other. Like you get the weirwood leaves described as like fiery hands at some points. Mm -hmm. And that, that crossover point is really interesting. I think, you know, in part just because that's what Jon Snow more or less is, is the crossover of ice and fire. And just all that that represents in emotional terms, you know, the, the ice preserving and being stoic and stern and the, the fire being emotion, emotional uh, excesses run wild. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if we're going to, 
get directly into Pact of Ice and Fire territory on this show, that would be great, but that's definitely something to watch for. In terms of this episode itself, how it starts, we get those great opening shots on the beaches of the Stepstones, and I just love, especially after seeing those bloody opening credits for the first time, that just the, the abject horror continues into this little sequence, watching the crabs crawl all over everyone, and we see the skulls. It's just, again, I'm a happy man. Yeah, it uh, kind of reminded me of openings from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, where they do these little montages that were, you know, either in slow-mo or set to music. And you'd see something very minuscule or minute, like ants swarming on an ice cream cone or a tarantula in open desert. And then later in the episode, they would contextualize exactly what that was. Um, I think we had some inkling, given the fact that they mentioned the crab feeder in the uh, premiere episode. But still, it was kind of just like fucked up imagery they kind of hit us with and then later near the end of the episode when Corliss and Damon are chatting we kind of get really understand what it is that's going on here and who we are that we are seeing but uh I think one thing I like is that it kind of has a symbolic sense of like you know the crabs are just kind of feasting on the corpses of something like something's rotten in the state of Denmark um this is just on the fringes of Westeros you know this is in the step zones um that decay or that rot hasn't come to the core of it yet but I think we're starting to see on the outsides you know there's some decay some pestilence going on and that something's eventually going to give and you know that's what we're going to see in the coming series and seasons absolutely yeah that I couldn't have put it better it's that's what these couple of shots, like you think you're going to get a full scene here at first, but it's only just a few shots and nothing really happens. It's it's just like an overture for the episode. It's the crabs feeding on the corpse of Westeros, like the titular feasting crows in A Feast for Crows, or the the dwarves that Danny sees in the House of the Undying that are all raping the woman who represents Westeros. It's decay and death hiding just under the surface. And then I love we cut right from that to red wine being poured in the goblet as they announce the death of Rhyme Redwine. You know, and he was he was lucky enough to die peacefully in his sleep, but he's going to be the last one. There's a lot of people are not going to be so lucky. And the emphasis on the crabs, that imagery starting off the episode also makes me think of what's called the crab bucket effect, where you have a bunch of crabs in a bucket and they're all trying to escape. And, you know, logically, any one crab could make it out, but them all sniping at each other and moving up and down, they all collectively prevent that from happening and they all die. It's that if I can't have it, nobody can attitude that I think you can map onto many situations. And it, I think it illustrates the politics of what's going on in Westeros really better than any dialogue can. Oh, that's great. I, I haven't actually heard of the crab bucket analogy, but that actually is a great uh, metaphor for everything that we're seeing happen. Um, one of the interesting tidbits that came out from one of the behind the scenes uh, videos is that the crab feeder does have grayscale, which you can kind of surmise based on his visual look or his makeup or costuming. Will this show do something with that or will it do something interesting and worthwhile and narratively satisfying with grayscale? Um, it could just be a flourish and that's kind of the you know value of a well-built world or a well-realized world is that you can have things like grayscale and the you know we know it'll probably matter for a song of ice and fire but here it can just be a little bit of a you know kind of a visual flourish if nothing else so in the small council uh we see uh corliss barge in after it was already in progress while they were toasting to ryan red wine with red wine uh I guess is the term they would say. Um, and he's saying that his ships kinda, were taken. Kind of ghoulish if you think about it, really. Yeah, it's like... It's um, <laughs> very poor taste. It's very similar to like Cersei eating the boar that killed uh, Robert for some reason. <laughs> it kind of has that same energy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but in the small council, uh, while they're pouring one out, uh, Corliss barges in to say that more of his ships were taken. I believe he says four of his ships were taken. And this is where we see Rhaenyra, who is in the role of cupbearer here, kind of speak up. And based on the reactions around the room, it doesn't seem like she speaks up that often because um, all heads kind of turn to her like, who's speaking? Wait, did someone say something? Um, and she emphasizes that they have dragons to use, which gets Corliss's attention in a good way, but everyone else kind of, you know, does that like side eye look away thing. And then we have Otto and Viserys just being uh, probably not. Let's not. Let's pretend you just didn't say that. And you kind of already get the sense that even though the last episode ended with like a big fuck yeah moment for Rainier and being named heir to the throne, she's not being taken seriously. She's already kind of being marginalized or not listened to despite being in that role. That reflects something she says later in the episode to Alicent, which is that she realized it's, oh, it's not so much that I'm the heir as that Damon isn't. Like, that was the main point of that whole ceremony. And that is something I do like about 
the plotting of the dance of, of the dragons, and that's reflected so far well in the show, is that really all these moves are built around the thing that pretty much no one wants to happen, which is Damon ending up the king. Even though really that's kind of the most obvious thing that could happen in this situation where the king has no no son to declare his heir. Passing it on to the younger brother is an easy political thing to happen, except that it's Damon. And Rhaenyra is kind of chafing and resenting her role in that gamesmanship because she feels manipulated. And yeah, her that cupbearer scene it reminds me of of when Arya is a cupbearer at Heron Hall. More so in the books, though, because you know in the, in the show it's one of uh, Tywin's cuddlier scenes or several of Tywin's cuddlier scenes when they get along. But in the books, when Arya speaks up to Roos, the way George writes it, Roos reacts as though his dinner was talking back to him. <laughs> like, and obviously it's a much different class relationship. And Rhaenyra, you know, obviously her father is in the room, but it's that same reaction that you pointed out where they. It's not just that they disagree with her, it's that they're shocked she spoke up and kind of forgot she was in the room, which is not how you treat someone you think is the heir. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's this, it's, it comes up later in the scene with, um, when they're talking about the small council scene, Viserys and Rhaenyra, and Rhaenyra tries to come back to this subject and Viserys shuts her down and says, you know, you'll, you'll get there, you'll learn to do the job. But there's this paradox of like, if all she's doing is waiting her turn, then by the time she gets the job, she won't be ready. Like, you haven't let her in. You haven't trained her. It's like, you know, you can't get a job without experience, but you can't get experience without a job. Like, it's a, it's an uncomfortable position to be in. And that really reminds me of Ariane from the books, of Ariane Martel, uh, who also is, you know, thinks she's supposed to be the heir because she's the eldest child in my Dornish law. A woman's allowed to inherit, but feels like she hasn't been trained. She's always been kept at arm's length. And as many people have pointed out, uh, the the storyline in Dorne in A Feast for Crows is structurally very similar to the dance. Ariane even basically points this out at one point, that she is basically the Dornish Rhaenyra, and her father, Doran, is basically Viserys. Eris Okard is Kristen Cole. In terms of who the daemon is, you could argue it's Oberyn, because he's the, you know, the rakish brother of Doran. But in terms of Ariane's own plot, her daemon figure is Darkstar, which, <laughs> that's too bad. You should, you should be able to set your sights higher than that, but... That's that's one of those areas where you see the dance is beyond the individual character motivations. Is this? It's a pattern that George is really into, and he kind of he works it out through a variety of characters. Oh yeah, no, that's great. Uh, I've been meaning to go back and read that uh, uh, soiled night chapter again, just because I want to be really familiar with everything George was laying out with Kristen Cole back there. But you can definitely see the prototype for everything that he had in mind with this. Um, and then one thing uh, our friend Mary was uh, chatting about in a group uh, chat with me earlier today was that uh, her idea that perhaps Viserys at the behest of Otto has taken a strong anti-dragon usage from a military standpoint as a matter of policy, um, which would kind of line up with some of the things that Viserys has already said to us in the show about how he views um, the dragons as being in control of us and not the other way around and that they're more likely to bring about our doom and that's possibly what happened to Valyria. Um, so I think that might be something that's really on here and that could explain some of the reactions um, that are happening in the small council. And then, of course, at the same time, I'm also thinking about the Savas games between Tyrion and Young Griff about yeah. whether what time it is to or when you need to bring out the dragons, what's the best strategic play. Um, in a situation like this, it looks like something that a couple dragons might be able to just completely turn the tide against, you know, the pirates and the stepstones. Um, and Rhaenyra kind of proves her case later in the episode by showing up at Dragonstone and saying, hey, a dragon shows up and it completely changes the course of how this was going to go. Um, it renders it a lot less bloodless than it could have been if it's just a bunch of people fighting with each other. So um, they're doing a lot of like heavy narrative work here that I really like with uh, Rhaenyra speaking up. It gets at that great paradox of the dragons where they're more powerful when you don't actually unleash them but you just threaten to like, that's where the real power of something like a dragon is. And that's definitely George riffing on the, the logic of the cold war and the nuclear era, the idea of mutually assured destruction that you'll use the threat of war to enforce peace. And, you know, that might play out well in theory, but the problem is you always have kind of human passions and, and shortcomings inter interfering with your, your carefully built doomsday structure. Like that's what Dr. Strangelove is all about. And that plays heavily into how George handles the Targaryens is that, they are ultimately humans, not gods, and their interactions with the dragons make the dragons more 
lethal or more lethal in a more focused <laughs> way than they otherwise would be. And I think that, you know, the same thing applies to the the larger political game. There's, you know, Viserys fears the, the ripple effects of taking dragons into battle against the free cities. And Corliss protests, we're not going after the free cities, we're going after this guy, this pirate. But as, as I think he knows, but it's just kind of conveniently ignoring to try to get his way in the scene, uh, the crab feeder is the proxy of the free cities and is, is being kind of deployed on their behalf. And it, it leads into that, that age-old question of legitimacy, of where power comes from, which, of course, is super relevant to, to Damon and his egg that he treats, albeit very casually, as his symbol of power and, and righteous claim to the Iron Throne. And also with the dragons is the theme of fear that comes up later with Masaria. Fear is, you know, in many ways the prime tool of politics, and I, I think... What people want from their leaders is often a liberation from fear. I think what that fear is and what that liberation takes obviously varies wildly, but I think that is the core of a lot of politics. And as Corliss points out, Damon's open defiance reduces collective fear of Viserys. There are, it makes people think, oh, there are no consequences for defying this guy. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, and then one thing I was, I am going to be looking for in the show is how they handle Rhaenyra's character here. Um, in patriarchal societies, women in positions of power often have to play up overt political power or military acumen just to seem, you know, quote unquote, fit, fit to rule as their male counterparts. Um, and that willingness to use brute military force as such is seen as a masculine trait in these kind of societies, which kind of leads down the path of imperial feminism, where you just see a woman taking power, but then kind of unleashing the same war machine and the same havoc that her male counterparts was. And Rhaenyra here in this scene is striking a strong balance, you know, in terms of what she did, does near the end of the episode, retrieving the egg, no small council members dies, in fact, no one dies. But, you know, things we know that are coming later in the dance, she will kind of lose that balance and then leading to some really real awful shit. So I'm very interested in how the show is going to portray the progression from here where she had just the right touch with uh, that dragon politics versus uh, later on when she's definitely going to play her hand a little too hard. And then uh, we can kind of move on to the Kingsguard selection process, which is not just the next scene, but they literally ushered Rhaenyra out of the room and said, hey, go to this scene um, and don't <laughs> listen to what us powerful men are about to talk about right now in this moment. Um, and they kind of uh, framed the scene with a chessboard prop. It's not a chessboard, but they had all the sigils of the various candidates um, with little, you know, statuette figurines. And they kind of moved them into center board um, as uh, Sir Gerald Westerling was announcing them and going over their resumes. And the phrase would be poacher just absolutely was sending me last night, like would be <laughs> poacher. He didn't quite do the poaching, but he was thinking about it. Uh, it reminds me of Sideshow Bob. Do they give a Nobel Prize for attempted chemistry? <laughs> attempted murder. What is that? It just... What is that? As many people have pointed out, Kelsey Grammer would slide into the Thrones universe just fine. He, <laughs> he could easily play a maester. But yeah, I love that. A would-be poetry. Yeah, like he was eyeing a deer with malign intent. Who knows Who knows what's going on there? And yeah, I love the, the little bit with the, the, the representations of their sigils. And I love they didn't explain it. It's one of those things they just show it to you as soon as like... Otto Hightower rolls his eyes and moves the first one back. You know exactly what that thing is for, and you don't need a little speech. So, nice touch. Yeah. And while Otto and Rhaenyra was interesting, because they had a little conversation during this, I think the real interesting dynamic for me was Rhaenys watching both of them uh, while they were having the chat, and it didn't seem like they were cognizant that Ray uh, Rhaenys was watching uh, them and it's been kind of a thing that's been going on throughout the show already uh, last episode we saw Damon watching the small council you know kind of peering in without anyone knowing and then later this episode we're going to see as Corliss and Rhaenyra are watching Viserys and Lena kind of try to hit it off and then Rhaenyra herself while watching them is being watched by Rhaenys. Um, so it's really emphasizing the house in the house of the dragon aspect like these are all people under essentially one roof it's like the most fucked up incestuous version of the real world and everyone is watching everyone yeah you got a strong sense of just too many ambitious personalities under one roof again it's it's a crab bucket and they're all snipping at each other and all trying to get to the top and none of them can and it's, it, it's a constant theme in the song of ice and fire that you you have this political imperative to create a big family that's what they talk about in this episode you want to have spares for your heir and you want to show off that you can 
But then when they grow up, they're fighting over the table scraps because it's not like the territory itself is getting bigger. Like we see that right from the start of A Song of Ice and Fire when Waymar Royce is described as something like he is the third son of an old proud house with too many heirs. Like that's that's the position he was put in because of this logic, even more so the phrase. I mean, uh, and in one sense, it makes sense for Walter to make as many children as he can because then he can send them out to be like, you know, to get into other family lines across Westeros. We see him try to do that in the wake of the Red Wedding. But on the other hand, it means they're all brought up with this this intense kill-or-be-killed logic. <laughs> we see trickle down to that wonderful little brat, Big Walder, who's like, I'm 55th in the line of succession, and here are my plans to murder the other 54. <laughs> like, he's just kind of absorbed that hole from his older relatives. And yeah, I, I like the, the the theme of uh, of observation, and, and Rhaenys being there specifically fits with the previous episode, because, you know, what frustrates Rhaenyra about these men is exactly what Rhaenys pointed out in the previous episode, which is that they're all the Knights of Summer. None of them have seen war. And, you know, it's it's been, when uh, Catelyn says that in the main series, Knights of Summer, about Renly's Knights, it's been like, you know, 16-ish years since Robert's Rebellion, but it's been considerably longer than that since we've seen a large-scale war in Westeros in this timeline. Kristen Cole is the only one who's seen any action, which is why, partially why, Rhaenyra zooms in on him. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I love that while this is, this is supposed to be make work for Rhaenyra, something to keep her busy, picking Kristen Cole ends up having major consequences for how this story plays out. And that's fitting because a lot of leadership is about personnel. It's about not just about the decisions you make, but about who you hire to make decisions for you. And it's worth noting that in passing, uh, Sir Westerling says that Otto Hightower helped him handpick the candidates. So he's the hand is shaping the choices even before Rhaenyra steps in to choose among them. He has already excluded people. He already has a plan. And as he tells her, he's thinking in terms of which families to please, which, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, sure, it's kind of slimy and unsatisfying and doesn't fit with the, the heroic warrior model that Rhaenyra is talking about. But yeah, it does make sense to try to keep these families on the crown side. And the Kingsguard is a, is a way of doing that. And uh, Otto is the one who, yeah, tells Allison to to thank the first guy because not only did he see a would-be po- poacher, but he brought him to justice, which I can think we can assume means killed him on the spot <laughs> for daring to think about feeding himself, but not actually having done it yet. And that's yeah, again, like like with the blood in the opening credits, like the crab bucket, it's it's brute butchery playing itself out under this smooth surface of nice words and, and gestures and protocols, and that's how Kristen Cole is keeps moving up in the world. Yeah, you can see that probably Otto invited Kristen Cole just because, oh, that was the guy who knocked Damon on his ass. So I'll give him a pity invite just to fill out the ring. Wasn't rank. that funny? Mm-hmm. Um, and even when Rhaenyra announces Kristen Cole, you can see the Malister and I forgot what house the other guy was from, but they kind of exchanged a glance at each other uh, while the camera was there. Like, wait, we were here to, you know, possibly move up and advance the station of our house. Um, we figured this guy was just kind of here as a showpiece just to fill out the five or whatever candidates they needed for this election. So um, it was supposed to be kind of a let's pick what house we're going to kind of strengthen ties here by picking a Kingsguard member. And then Rhaenyra kind of stepped out of that bounds with picking Kristen Cole. So the next scene is Viserys and Allison talking about Viserys's model Valeria that he's building. And this begins a long streak in this episode of metaphors for Viserys Targaryen's failing rule. <laughs> Uh, it's poignant that right here he admits that he didn't even build the scale model of Valeria. The stonemasons did it. Uh, he just provided the details based on his histories and books. So he's a man of thought and knowledge maybe, but not a man of action. A lot like Magor with the Red Keep. He had other people build it for him. And then you know what happens next to all those people. And but yeah, I love I love the glimpse into Valyrian lore we get here. that The, the blood mages had their own tower, the Anagrion. And it, it sounds a lot like how the followers of R'hllor operate, especially in Volantis as we see them in the main series. And that's something I've always wondered about and want to learn about any potential connection. Because we don't see any explicit links between R'hllor and Old Valyria, but come on, with the sacrifices to fire and the, the, the dragon imagery and prophecies in common, I feel like there has to be some connection uh, buried somewhere in history. We'll see. And yeah, there's yeah, there's like endless series of, of metaphors for greed and folly is, is, is this episode. The Valyrians building on a volcano is a, a perfect example. It's their source of power, but it's also their doom. And I love that Viserys acknowledges that Valyria underwent a fall, but then doesn't go into any details about it. He prefers to linger on the wistful memory of glory. And the question Alicent asks of whether Westeros can be another Valyria is a double-edged sword. Well, who would benefit from that? And who wouldn't? 
Valyria enriched itself through conquest and slavery, and one way of looking at Westerosi expansion into the Stepstones is it's it's a move in that direction. It's a, a stepping stone, if you will. It's even back in the direction of Valyria. It's like the Targaryens are trying to win their way back. Yeah, what you mentioned earlier, I'm really interested in how the religion of Rolor is going to play in with the myth of Old Valyria, if it does, because I think the question of slavery is a big thing that would have to be reconciled, um, because I think the followers of the Red God right now are very anti-slavery, whereas slavery built uh, Old Valyria, it seems. Um, and, you know, there's a way, there's always two sides to one coin, so I can see how they can be connected, but um, that is a connection I would love to see fleshed out a little bit more somewhere in George's, his version of the Legendarium, I don't know what that's called. Um, and then, speaking of the metaphors, there's the broken dragon figurine, which in many ways, Viserys himself is a broken dragon. He was broken by the death of Emma and the question of succession, perhaps um, broken in that he is a Targaryen king with no dragon. And the dragon he did have was Balerion, which is a connection to old Valyria that is now broken with Balerion having passed. And then the broken dragon could even be a reference to his kind of no dragon policy that I was mentioning earlier, that he doesn't want to bring them out or use them as a military, um, you know, advantage. And then uh, talking about the return scene where uh, Alicent and Viserys uh, are, you know, kind of chatting again. And Viserys, or sorry, Alicent uh, gives him the dragon, that, but it's been fixed by the stonemasons. Um, the way that she presented it in a box and he opened it and accepted it, it almost read like a proposal scene to me, especially considering that the following scene would be, um, you know, their actual announcement of engagement. Um, and I just thought that was a really nice visual way to kind of foreshadow the ending of this episode. Yeah, that's a great call. I mean, that's really, yeah, this is the big symbol of the episode. And that's what I love about it is it, you know, it's you, you turn it like a diamond and see the light go through it and it can mean something else. You can think about that broken dragon as the fall of Valyria, which is what Viserys is talking about as he drops it. You could think about it as the, the death of baby Balon, the heir for a day, the, the, the dragon that broke too soon. And of course, you can think about it as, as Viserys fumbling his way into war, that this is him breaking his family apart. And it also stands in for the the death of the dragons, that only a handful make it out of the dance, and they don't last long after that. Alicent in this scene gives Viserys hope, and she's you know she kind of she promises to make it whole, and that's what we're going to see kind of play out, I think, over a lot of the rest of the season. But as it turns out, her sons are going to help tear the rotten fruit open from within. Uh, speaking of rotten fruit, do we need to explain the metaphor of the maggots feasting on Viserys's rotten flesh? Or all the cuts he's been accumulating while sitting on the Iron Throne. Uh, can you explain that one to me? What could it possibly mean, Manu? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, some things don't need to be subtle. And some things are there, in part just for the characters to, to over, you know, to deliberately overlook. Like, they're, they're deliberately over ignoring those signs. Because they know what a, a cut from the Iron Throne means. But I think they're all just, just keeping it under wraps. And it's, yeah, it's very similar. The maggots are very similar to the crabs earlier in the episode. With the perverse twist that the maggots are being used to try and heal Viserys. Like, that's the goal. They're going to get rid of the corrupted flesh. And the people fighting over Westeros, who are the, the maggots in this metaphor, they they sincerely do want to rule it. You know, the, we don't really know much about the crab feeder, but I, I doubt he has, you know, policies in mind for the Stepstones. It seems like he's mostly just there to kill. And the, both sides in the Dance of the Dragons sincerely think themselves best suited for the job. Problem is, they burn a whole lot of it down in the process. <laughs> They sure do. Uh, probably makes sense that the next scene is full of candles. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, maybe not. But um, we get the sub scene with Alicent and Rhaenyra, and they make plain how little help these young girls have growing up in the society. Um, they're both grieving their lost mothers without help from their fathers. Um, almost nothing from their fathers. Forget just help grieving. And, you know, I think that line from Alicent about how she must make the effort to get anything out of her own father, Otto Hightower, speaks to how much labor women put into the family and domestic relationships just to have meaningful connections with powerful male family members, ones that can potentially wield some kind of power dynamic over them like a husband or a father. And this, yeah, this is one of the scenes in the episode that felt kind of too slow to me at first. But as it went on, I came to appreciate the, the emphasis on the silences and the pauses between words. And it, it fits a scene that ends up being about prayer, about talking to people who aren't there. And yeah, I love the, the, the atmosphere, the, the candles and the smoke. It's really dizzying to watch, especially if you watch it on a, on a large screen. It's that, that ring of fire, again, another potent symbol for what the Targaryens are getting themselves into. 
And coming off of Sansa 3, where we talked about Sansa's white cloak giving way to the Lannister mm. red cloak, um, I did notice that Rhaenyra was in all white. And then when Allison places her arm on Rhaenyra's sleeve, and you can see all the blood that's been built up around her cuticles that gets caked in there from all her picking at it, um, you get kind of that same symbolism going that whatever was pure here now is going to give way to violence. And then speaking of that issue with, you know, the family power dynamics between male and female members, um, you see some of that in the dinner scene that follows with Rhaenyra and Viserys. Um, they clearly haven't talked much since Emma's passing, and he's trying to be supportive. You can see him, like, in the case of Kristen Cole being like, yeah, that was a fine selection for the Kingsguard. He doesn't seem to have the reservations that Otto Hightower did in the moment. But the minute she mentions the small council, he shuts her down as being young and stupid, not even allowing her to finish her thought or apologize or whatever Rhaenyra was going to say he didn't even allow that to even occur even with the best of intentions it's it's really hard for them to be honest and intimate with each other because they have to keep sliding between the personal and the political their father and daughter in one moment and king and heir the next there's the scene later on when Rhaenyra comes back from Dragonstone where Viserys insists you're my heir you can't put yourself at risk oh but I'm your heir doesn't really count for getting information in small council meetings, huh? That's this. That's what Rhaenyra's really chafing against in this episode, is she's feeling like this, this new status, it only binds her. It does not protect her. It does not open up her possibilities. It actually shrinks them down, because now she has to be more responsible for herself. And so that's, that's the political dynamic taking hold. But in that same later scene, all it takes for Rhaenyra to disarm her father is to ask to sit down, and then they do, and then she cracks a joke about Otto Hightower, and then it's like nothing ever happened, and they're father and daughter again, and that's that's what makes it so complicated for them and so effectively painful a story, is that they can never fully let each other go, but they have to, at least partially. We follow that up with uh, Rhaenys and Corlys meeting with Viserys. And in this conversation, which is kind of a little bit of touch base before they get to their real point, um, they discuss the war on the Stepstones. And Viserys says his first objective as king is to avoid war at all costs, which kind of reflects not only his political goals, but also his own personal desires. One we're going to see play out with the feuds that will happen between the Greens and the Blacks. He's just someone who tries to wish to avoid conflict and not engage with it and try to make everyone happy. It's fascinating that Corliss lists among their weaknesses, the weaknesses of the throne right now, is that a woman has been named heir. It's like, dude, your wife, she's standing right there. <laughs> the woman who was almost named heir and is still really pissed about it. But it's a, it's, a, it's a practical and pragmatic approach to take. It does look like a bad sign to many people who are not them. And the other, the other thing that stood out to me about this scene, maybe this is just me, but because like they had the wind coming off the sea and like Eve Best's wig was like floating in, like floating into her mouth like rain is gone. Get get your hair out of your face. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, man, I can't wait to rewatch and uh, point, pick that out. It'll be one of those things you can't unsee once you know that it's there. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, Corliss, Corliss makes a metaphor that pretty much sums up Viserys too as we keep that metaphor streak going. When there's a storm on the horizon, you must go through it or around it, but not wait for it to come to you. And that's basically what Viserys does over the course of the prelude to the Dance of the Dragons. Um, he doesn't really solidify the question of succession even as it becomes more tenuous with the birth of future children. Um, but at the same time, I enjoy that Viserys is kind of what the fuck is this? She's a child at the suggestion to marrying Elena Valerian, the daughter of Corliss and Rhaenys. Um, I don't think it's supposed to make us like Viserys more per se, but I think there is some value in him noting the absurdity of it, even though he basically just goes along with it and entertains the idea until he finds a slightly more, you know, suitable child bride to his tastes, I guess. I, th I think they do a good job of capturing the awfulness of it like, not just by having a character turn to the screen and tell the audience it's bad, but by just, like, showing just it as as visually absurd. Like, you're walking along this this nice avenue with the hedges, and you cut from this grown man to this obvious child. And it's just Im immediately throws you off. You got the, the gorgeous surroundings, the nice clothes. Again, it's it's all this beauty wrapped around something that is just so ugly and blunt. Like, when she says, I wouldn't have to bed you until I turned 14. Like, that's, there's no way Viserys can tell himself he's the good guy after hearing that sentence come out of her mouth. And, or like the, the later scene when he's talking to Lionel Strong about it and brings up the proposal. And he just, he, he lists 
I'm sure he had this list all ready to go. He lists all the bullet points, all the good reasons to marry her, and says, why not? And Viserys has to say, well, you know, she's 12. Like, he has to point, he has to point that out. And Lionel Strong doesn't even think that's worth mentioning. And it's, he thinks it's not worth mentioning, I think, in part so he doesn't have to think about it. And they, as long as no one looks at what's happening, we won't have to deal with it. I think that's what makes it funny that we get this kind of, I think it's like from the point of view of Corliss, but it's essentially a long shot of Viserys and Lena walking. And you can tell Lena is like half the height of Patty Considine. So it's immediately an absurd notion before we even zoom into the conversation and see what's happening or even who he's talking to in the moment because you might not be clear since we haven't really seen Lena yet. And Rhaenyra is watching all this and then Rhaenys watching her like we mentioned earlier. And then afterwards, Rhaenys basically lays out the tale that's going to be told. The lords, of Westero- the lords of Westeros would rather burn it down than see a woman take the Iron Throne. It makes plain that Viserys will remarry and have sons, which we know he will. And there's a real fear of that notion for Rhaenyra just abstractly at this point, um, not even accounting for the eventual fact that it will be Alicent in the role who is uh, siring these sons. Um, one thing I kind of noticed in this scene, though, is there was a bit of a Olena Marjorie uh, vibe between these two performers. And you can kind of feel uh, Millie Alcock, who plays Rhaenyra, kind of slipping into her lady of the court face for this presentation. Um, I feel like in the cupbearer scene earlier, she was kind of channeling some of that Arya energy, like you mentioned. Um, but here she very much feels like Marjorie, who's kind of like pithy with her comebacks and be, you know, putting down, but also like playing the game along with the older participants. So um, just, to, just a feel I got from it. Absolutely. And, and Rhaenys has that Olena mix of being amused and annoyed with you at the same time. It's a, it's a similar vibe, although obviously it's more somber because, uh, Marjorie and Olena scenes tend to, tend to be lighter and, and, and more humorous for the most part. And yeah, this dynamic, because of that, kind of somber attitude also reminded me of Catelyn and Brienne mm-hmm. a couple of more intimate scenes they get especially in the books when they talk about about gender and sadness the two, the two main themes of thrones gender and sadness <laughs> and how they intersect and yeah again a great point about the theme of, of observation I noticed when I was rewatching that right when the scene starts Viserys glances up like he's aware of Corlys watching him or maybe Rhaenyra or maybe both and kind of everything he does is done with that awareness that he has no private life, even though he's uh, considering what ought to be a private decision or a personal decision, but it really can't be, not for him. And yeah, then you have Rhaenys spelling out the subtext to Rhaenyra. And even though I just, you know, said like a minute ago, I don't like it when characters turn to the screen and spell out the themes, it's all in how you handle it. And this is appropriate, I think, because Rhaenys is, as she says, she's bringing a blunt truth to the surface that no one else is willing to talk about that that this is the truth hiding beneath all the nice surfaces that no matter what they tell you Rhaenyra they think of you as an object like the statues and the hedges and the fountains and that's always that's also what's going on with that little kid down there and I I like in terms of Rhaenys's character that she's not just like an NPC here to deliver exposition which is kind of what I started to worry she might become in this show she is given some human emotions you can you can tell that the resentment is still there and the self-absorption is still there when she's like, oh, they'll never pick a woman. After all, they didn't pick me, the best woman in the world. <laughs> and she, you know, she's a, as the, the great Gatsby line, she's a boat beaten back into the past, which is a lot like the Roberts Rebellion generation in A Song of Ice and Fire, how all of them are in their own ways fixated on, on what happened 15 years ago. And that scene concludes with, with Rainus going, your father is no fool, which is, you know, open question when it comes to Viserys, but... <laughs> Her point stands, which is that Viserys is not so idealistic a dreamer as to completely ignore uh, what Rhaenys calls the order of things. Yeah, I think Viserys is aware of the questions of power that are at play. I just think he chooses to answer them poorly at every turn (laughs) more than anything. Well said. Uh, and I think they're starting to seed um, the de- the debut of Vagar at some point in the near future here because we get Lena asking about Vagar, um, and it just the way they've kind of started like planting the seeds it usually means a big reveal come. And by big, I mean like you know an episode four or five reveal. But uh, Vagar being the oldest dragon, the biggest dragon, and obviously very very important to the events of the Dance of the Dragons. Um, I feel like they're going to roll out the red carpet metaphorically for his debut in this series. Agreed. And I, I like that scene just for the, the contrast between how Viserys and Lena relate to this. Like for Viserys, this is 
This is it's very rueful because it's all in the past. He's got this nostalgia for Valyria, talking about Vagar being too large for our world, like our immortal lives just got too petty and small to contain something so magical. But what Lana cares about is where Vagar might be now, like in a place I could go and, and see the dragon. Like that's something could be in my future. That's something that could still be something unexpected and unknown. And Viserys just feels like the walls closing in around his decision making. Yeah, and uh, behind closed doors, we see Viserys talking about his meet and greet with Lena with uh, Otto Hightower, and I think the uh, Maester Melos is present there. And we see that, you know, Otto, through a steely facade, is a little bit like, oh shit, you know, Corliss is making his play, and we know there's some animosity between uh, House Hightower and House Valerion. Um, and I got a little bit of that Littlefinger machination vibes that I love so much from these kind of stories. Um, the way that uh, Littlefinger learned of the Sansa Tyrell plot in A Storm of Swords and then kind of put to work his own machinations to, you know, kind of get what he wanted out of everything. Uh, we see him being like, oh, you know, Corliss is moving on this thing. I need to get my daughter, um, you know, closer to the king and eventually uh, betrothed to her like we see at the end of the episode. Yeah, Otto is definitely leveling up throughout this episode. I love how how ruthless he is when he's he's using emotion as a weapon. When he tells Viserys he missed his own wife so much and he, he hates to see Viserys wet again purely out of political necessity. Like, that's just... I think his feelings are genuine, but he, he uses them to kind of lead Viserys right to Alicent. And even in the, the next scene that Viserys and Alicent share, they're, they're just barely avoiding spelling it out. Oh, we need a queen. Does your grace have anyone in mind? Lena? Oh, I'm sure she will enjoy your company, as I have. <laughs> and then there's that quick little insert shot of her digging into her own fingers. So even as Alicent is performing her subtle role wonderfully, behind the surface there's that that raw, nervous energy and that pain, that blood rushing through the opening credits that keeps coming back. And uh, yeah, Otto's relationship to Alicent keeps being underlined, the kind of the the dishonest, manipulative nature of it. Like in that scene when Otto comes in to tell Viserys about the dragon egg, like I know, you know, it's a big deal, but like he doesn't even acknowledge his daughter or look at her when he comes into the room. And then later when he's about to leave for Dragonstone, he looks at her nails and goes, why, why, why do you destroy yourself? And then the next thing he says is, will you see the king tonight? Like, no, Otto, I wonder why your daughter is so anxious and nervous all the time. Why could that possibly be? Yeah, hypercritical of her and also commanding her to go make besties with someone who's like 30 to 40 years her senior. So um, you can see why this girl is under a lot of pressure. And I, I don't blame her at all for, well, anything she's done so far. <laughs> Uh, and then, well, I'd say maybe like 30 minutes into this episode, we finally get to the fireworks factory of sorts. Um, no diss to the first half, but Matt Smith was not present. Uh, his Damon Targaryen was talked about and off-mentioned. Uh, so his arrival in the second half of this episode feels like things just got a bit more serious. Um, this is Otto Hightower leading a little sortie onto uh, Dragonstone to confront Damon about the stolen dragon egg. Um, and Damon asks, you know, why is my brother not here? To which Otto says, your brother wouldn't lower himself to show show his face at this mummer's farce, which I found hilarious because right before this, Viserys was about to go himself to Dragonstone. And it was Otto that had to stop him and be like, no, you shouldn't go. I'll go do it. Ah, but Damon doesn't know that. And yeah, Otto, Otto knows exactly what he's doing there. Because he, I think he... Even though Otto despises Damon, I think he gets Damon at a gut level. I think maybe more than most people even do. And I think Otto gets that Damon isn't really doing this for the Iron Throne in itself, but he's doing it because he feels slighted by his big brother. And pricking Damon's pride like that is direct, but dangerous. It feels to me almost like Otto is, is trying to goad Damon into open war here so that then Viserys can't turn back and is going to have to bring the Rogue Prince down for good, which I'm sure is, is Otto's ultimate goal. And so he seems ready to make that happen until Caraxes shows up. That is crawling over with his, his beautiful snake penis neck, crawling over Dragonstone towards them. And Otto immediately tells his men to put their swords down. Sheed the fucking steel, as he says. And it's right after that great little montage of all of them taking out their swords. But then as soon as the dragon shows up, nope, swords are no more use here. <laughs> and neither is political grandstanding. Uh, Rhaenyra later in the scene uses her dragon to prevent Otto from sending her back on the spot. He says, Kristen Cole, take her away. But then Rhaenyra subtly threatens them with her own dragon. Dragons are a, a trump card, and that's what makes them irresistible. 
It's also what makes them so dangerous. While we're on the dragons, uh, let's talk a, just a brief moment about the visuals here. Um, I dumped on this new technology called the volume quite a bit in relation to some recent Star Wars television. Um, but uh, for anyone who might not know, the volume is like this new fangled version of matte paintings, uh, digital back projections that can maintain lighting and perspective uh, for creating these large or fantastical backgrounds. Uh, I've seen it used well, like in the Batman that came out earlier this year, but I've mostly seen it used poorly. Um, so I've been very curious how they were going to de be deployed in this show. And this scene on the Dragonstone Bridge was wonderful, I thought. It was a wonderful use of the volume. Um, that bridge or causeway just looked great, the way it just snaked its way up onto the great castle. Um, and then they just had that great swooping camera shot that came in from the shoreline. It panned over this, like ancient looking gate that I don't think we've ever seen in like the throne geography of Dragonstone before. And then it kind of opened up to this great misty dawn and everything was just super sharp. Um, I was a really a big fan of the visuals here. Yeah, this was a, such a beautiful return to Dragonstone, which is one of my favorite locations in the books. And uh, the show, you know, it, it looked good, but we were mostly just focused on the one room <laughs> in Dragonstone, <laughs> which I get. But yeah, here we get just this far broader scope. And I think they captured it well that Dragonstone is both like this this grim, miserable place of just mud and shit and just mundanity. And somehow, though, it's also otherworldly and seems like it, it came from just from somewhere else. It's built on another volcano, after all. It's almost like a little like a little mini Valyria. And there's uh, we get yeah great overhead shots of the causeway. I love the little bit with the, the clouds rippling just as Rhaenyra shows up. Great little touch. But really, once again, Matt Smith is stealing the show here. <laughs> he just comes out just just casually tossing the dragon egg around, just hand to hand. It reminds me uh, of Euron, who was also very much a Daemon figure, and how he he tells Victorian that he had a dragon egg, but he threw it into the sea in just one of his fits of passion. I don't think that's actually true, but it still fits the same kind of you know it's it's performative. Look at look at how confident and self possessed I am <laughs> that I can just treat a treasure like it's a tennis ball, like it's just nothing. And it also underlines how little Damon actually cares about that egg. He only cares about the message he can send with it. And he, he gives it up very kind of easily when the scene ends, because when it comes to it, he he doesn't actually want to kill Rhaenyra, or Viserys for that matter. He he wants them to love him, which is, is not the kind of thing you can say out loud if you want to maintain your, your badass war leader persona, but that's pretty clearly what's driving him. And as I said, I think Otto knows that pretty clearly. And of course, there's the fun bit where Damon is all, you know, sneery and snarky to Crispin, Crispin Cole. What was it Crispin? Was it Crispin Glover? <laughs> Fish and chips, whatever your name is. And uh, once again, the theme of misogyny comes to the fore here. That that Otto, both at the small council scene and here, fixates on on Masaria, like she's really the problem here. Like you know, I think I think stealing the dragon egg and occupying Dragonstone are really the declarations of war. Like, not that he has a lady who doesn't meet your approval, sir. Yeah, the Masaria bit is kind of interesting uh, because in Fire and Blood, um, it's just said that Masaria was with child and that she would lose the child later on a journey to Lise uh, following the events of this little showdown. Um, they didn't even really detail the showdown much in Fire and Blood. Um, but this makes us believe that she was never with child and it was just something that Damon said and the only people who ever really kind of learned the truth were like Rhaenyra and Damon and Masaria. <laughs> um, everyone else just kind of assumed it and then the story that the maester got that wrote fire and blood that's the one that's going to live on though that is somewhere where we see there might be room for interpretation i know there the show and book canon are not the same um, but that is a place where the book and the show are kind of like playing off each other in a very fun way it's an interesting twist and it, it plays right into the the themes we've seen in this episode and the last one about uh, progeny and and misogyny and social expectations that Damon is just treating her as a prop, as just a, as a way to piss everyone off. Look at who I'm threatening to marry and impregnate. Doesn't that shock you? And I, I love her her just on the causeway, her just her silent consternation as she glares at Damon and then walks away and vents her outrage later. And there's that scene between the two of them, which visually, of course, it reminds you of Stannis and Melisandre because they were both in that room a lot uh, on Game of Thrones. But what they're actually talking about reminds me a lot more of, of Tyrion and Shay in terms of how you know the stakes of this are, are not as abstract for her as they are for him that she she describes childbirth 
childbirth as this this threat that she has avoided and for him it's just this whim like you know he says yeah we're gonna have a kid and then she says well i can't and he says good kids suck and it's like (laughs) damien can afford to just flip-flop like that and she really can't yeah, no, it's very interesting. One thing I will give Damon in terms of the Game of Thrones is that he really is about all those symbols of power. He's taken the seat on Dragonstone. He's taken a dragon egg. Uh, he even claims he's taken Missaria to wife in the tradition of old Valyria. Um, you can see him kind of, even if he's just kind of doing it to, you know, because he's kind of pissed at what Viserys has done or how he feels kind of uh, snubbed in this whole secession air process, he is kind of donning the floppy ears of that heir. You know, he wants to be the king of rabbits. So here he is with a dragon egg and two wives and uh, sitting at Dragonstone. Um, he ki- he understands playing the Game of Thrones, even if he isn't really playing it to win it. He's mostly playing it to kind of piss other people off. <laughs> And I did want to make one note because I did love the sound design on the dragons here, specifically that they kind of sounded different. Uh, Caraxes, as described by the sound designer for House of the Dragon, Paula Fairfield, uh, she also did the sound design for Game of Thrones, um, kind of described the personality she gave uh, Caraxes just so that she can come up with sounds for him and that he was a bully dragon. He had a deviated septum and that he kind of spoke in chirps or whatnot that were similar to the baby dragons of Game of Thrones, hinting at the fact that he might be somewhat stunted socially um, to the extent that dragons have social skills, I guess. <laughs> uh, but um, I like that they did this little Syrax versus Caraxes face-off because it is an overture to the broader conflict that is the Dance of the Dragons. We are going to see dragon-on-dragon violence, but they kind of teased it with two dragons we know won't be fighting each other, uh, two mm-hmm. dragons that will actually be on the same side. So it's a nice way to both um, portend what's going to come, but actually not give away what the actual game is. And I think that's kind of accentuated by like the closing shots of the scene. Um, when the camera is pulling out and the two sides are separating, um, there's this great silhouette shot against the mist. Um, and you can see that uh, Syrax is still in frame, but Caraxes is not, uh, signifying that in this little bout, uh, Rhaenyra came out on top. And what really pissed her off was the personal insult to her dead brother, that that's the egg Damon took, the one she put in baby Balin's crib. And that sets up how how recklessly Damon turns against his own family. Even though, as you say, he's going to be uh, one of Rhaenyra's chief allies, as well as her husband, it really sets the precedent for the dance, the, the dragons turning on one another. And once again, though, Rhaenyra and Damon, they're, you know, I think it's in part the actors, it's in part the dialogue, they, they have good chemistry, and that's emphasized by how they use the Valyrian language together, which both here and the previous episode, I think, is a good choice. Because when they do that, it feels like there's this bubble around the two of them, and it's just cutting off the rest of the world, for better or worse. Uh, I do have two complaints to make right here. One is inconsequential to the show itself, but the subtitles on my HBO Max are really small for the High Valerian, I've noticed. Um, I don't know if that's an experience anyone else has had, but I just want to say that while I'm here right now. Um, I was also a little... Not sure on Masaria's accent. Uh, it yeah. was, um, it might work great in like shorter senses and kind of a dialogue or response, but in terms of a longer monologue, um, it just kind of had a really weird pacing to it. And I know that's not the actor's natural voice, um, but I'm not exactly sure what the choice was there. But I think like the actual big, I guess, climax or turning point thing that really matters out of this episode, uh, especially given what comes next, is the fact that Viserys calls a meeting of the small council and Alicent there is present um, because she is going to be announced as uh, Viserys's new uh, bride-to-be, um, passing over Lena Valerian, much to Corliss's uh you know, anger. And then Rhaenyra was clearly blindsided by this, just having had a chat with Viserys saying, it's okay for you to take a wife, uh, assuming it was going to be uh, Lena and not her best friend. Yeah, there's some great, great acting there and great editing as you as you watch Rhaenyra turn to Alicent and slowly realize what's happening. And then the tears start to flow. Really, really well paced scene. I liked it a lot. And then one thing that was noted by C. Nimiro Smartel on Twitter today 
Um, we don't have like a hard timeline of these things happening in consecutive days, but it does very much seem like that Alicent is wearing the same dress she was wearing the night before when she was talking to uh, Otto. And he's like, are you going to visit the king tonight? Um, and then uh, the next morning we see them and he announces her as her bride. And Cena Maros had pointed out that it is very possible that perhaps the first time they betted was that night in between while uh, Otto and Rhaenyra went to Dragonstone. Uh, that was the first night that Allison, you know, hooked up, I guess, with Viserys. I guess it's technically rape given the ages here. Uh, but, you know, that's a very interesting thing when whether Viserys chose her to bride because he's like, oh, crap, I, if I got her with, you know, child, um, I don't want that bastard out there. Or I felt it was the honorable thing to do, very much like Rob Stark in the Westerlands. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting observation. I don't know if that's conclusive one way or another. Um, but considering we're going to start getting children the next episode, um, it is something that kind of has my uh, gears turning in my mind. It's a very subtle piece of evidence, but I like it a lot. It, it is noticeable she's wearing that, that distinct blue dress. But, you know, maybe uh, maybe Otto's just stingy with the clothes. Maybe maybe he told her to wear her mother's dresses, not just to seduce Viserys, but so he could, like, resell hers. Otto is a not a not a fun uh, guy to be the daughter of. And then the episode wraps up with a scene between Corliss and Damon on Driftmark, which we haven't been to yet. And we only get a couple quick glimpses of it here, but I, I really love it so far. That has that like fantastical under the sea feel like Dragonstone is all, you know, gargoyles and fire imagery and there's more ocean imagery on Driftmark very appropriately. But it also looks it looks rough. It looks handmade, which is appropriate, like because like Corliss says, un unlike most lords in the realm and unlike Viserys, he built his own seat. And for him, that gives them this kind of legitimacy and, and grit that the other lords lack. And maybe you too, other person sharing the scene, maybe you also have this. And of course, the love that slow revolving shot revealing Damon in the other chair. Not exactly a surprise, but it's, it's that classic tension building through nothing but camera movement. That's all you need. And it also gives uh, Steve Toussaint his most kind of room to shine so far, that long monologue about himself. I'm glad we're getting a little more attention on Corliss and Rainus as we go, although they are still, still on the fringe uh, relative to some other characters. And, and Corliss introduces the basis for his alliance with Damon to go out to the Stepstones because they're their second sons who are going to forge a kingdom all their own, which is also one of the major motifs of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I love that the episode ends specifically with these these edits back and forth between Damon and Crabfeeder. And the Crabfeeder's head is like he, he's looking up towards the left of the frame and Damon's looking to the right of the frame. It's it's like they can sense each other, like they they, they smell each other coming. And it makes sense that Damon is in, and Damon and the Crabfeeder are in some ways mirror images because they're both they're both proxies for larger powers. We already saw that with the Crabfeeder relative to the Free Cities. That's the argument they had in the Small Council. And when Damon goes to the Stepstones, for all that he's thinks he's forging his own kingdom, he's just he's the tip of the Westerosi spear. Yeah, now that mirror image uh, thing is a great observation um, because you're, you know, also juxtaposing the otherworldly beauty of the Targaryens versus mm -hmm. the crab feeder who's obviously decayed. He's wearing a mask, um, and there's a mask that's covering, you know, probably more grayscale and decay. So it l works really great. It does really look like the two are staring into each other's eyes half a world away. Um, it's very cool. Like that's very much like I don't know, like Gandalf and Saruman staring across the uh, what's it called, the Pass of Caradhras at each other. Um, just a long distance being covered by these two people. So maybe to wrap up, we can talk about maybe some of the weaknesses we thought besides anything we mentioned earlier. And I think for me, it's the same as the first episode. It's just that some of the dialogue still feels overly exp expository to me, um, which I think kind of improved as the back half of the episode went on, especially as it got kind of more actiony and less people just sitting there trying to communicate information to us. But it just feels very kind of perfunctory at times. I'm not sure how often I need to hear the queen who never was anymore thrown at um, Rhaenys, even though I thought it was a good rejoinder at the moment by Rhaenyra. But it feels like some of the conversation still is there more for us as opposed to anything that's happening between the characters. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. There is still some some clunky, as you know, sort of conversations happening. Which is just, you know, that's part of the perils of being early on in what is a very complex story with a lot of characters, a lot of world being, a lot of world building to establish. And I think, you know, in terms of tone, part of it is just that this is still an era of relative peace, which can be hard to dramatize because people are speaking diplomatically and they're following protocols and, you know, they're not all fighting each other, not yet. 
But I think there is there is a, a lack of, of urgency and tension in some of the dialogue scenes. And so if you're not into the world building, and if you don't know where these dynamics are going, you might be tempted to tune out early on in this episode. One thing I do love about the show so far, though, is the very confident time jumps that we've, we've gone over a few months in between episode one and episode two. And from the glimpses we've seen of episode three, we're going to be all the way up to Baby Egg on the second. And that will reshake the game board, so we... We'll have to catch up with stuff, but we might be mostly past the exposition. I hope. We we shall see. Yeah, no, I like that they're making these time jumps, but they're kind of just like subtly layering it in there. Um, it's not necessarily disrupting the narrative flow, but they're also not holding your hand by putting up a cry on that says six months later. Mm-hmm. And it looks like this next episode will, you know, based on average, you know, pregnancy length and then combine that, you know, Aegon looks like he at least has some hair and has some size to him. It looks like it might be almost two years that could pass between now and then, um, which I I remember reading Fire and Blood just before we got on and two, two, something happens like specifically two years after um, Alicent and Viserys get married, but I forget what that is. But um, I think that's kind of what we're looking for. And I like that they're doing that, but I think the only thing I'm not looking forward to is possibly losing Millie Alcock and Emily Carey, who's playing Alicent. Um, the young actors are doing such a wonderful job so far. And while I'm excited to get to the actual dance and the older actors for them, um, I will miss them when they're gone because they're really kind of the heart of the show so far, while uh, Matt Smith happens to be like the exciting part of it. Yeah, no, that's true. But well, yeah, it's a good problem to have is to have mm-hmm. too many too many good actors in one place. <laughs> so uh, while I'll miss them as well, I look forward to seeing what the older actors can do uh, with, with those same characters, given the setup we've had so far. So I think that's going to wrap us up for our episode on The Rogue Prince, uh, Season 1, Episode 2 of House of the Dragon. As always, if you want to rate us or leave us a review on your, your favorite podcast app of choice, we'd really appreciate it. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu at Manuclear, at Manuclear Bomb on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also follow my other podcast, The Lord of the Rings, my brother, my captain, my podcast, where we are going to start covering the Rings of Power series uh, starting at the end of this week. So we will see you next week for more House of the Dragon.